Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini, I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and joining me today is Forefront Chairman, Rich Chrisman. Here I am, loving Dallas. We have a very special guest with us today, and that is Dr. James K.A. Smith. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Oh, it's really a pleasure to talk with you, thanks. Thank you. Now, uh, listeners, James K.A. Smith is a professor of philosophy at Calvin University and serves as editor-in-chief of Image Journal, a quarterly devoted to art, faith, and mystery. Trained as a philosopher with a focus on contemporary French thought, Smith has expanded on that scholarly platform to become an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic. An award-winning author and widely traveled speaker, he has emerged as a thought leader with a unique gift of translation, building bridges between the academy, society, and the church. And uh, speaking of being a widely traveled speaker, we are uh, meeting today at the Catholic Imagination Conference in Dallas. So a big thank you to Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson and the team at University of Dallas that made this whole conference and this podcast possible. So what brings you to the Catholic Imagination Conference and what's been your favorite part so far? Yeah, um, so as you mentioned, I am uh, editor-in-chief of Image Journal, which yes. is uh, inhabits very much the same space as what this conference is gathering, which is that intersection of faith, art, literature, poetry. Uh, and so um, this is kind of the place to be this year in terms of uh, uh, being part of those conversations. And so we wanted to be a presence. And then uh, Jessica invited me to interview uh, the novelist Christopher Beha this afternoon, which yes. I'm very, very excited about. Um, my favorite, the highlight so far has been a fiction reading yesterday. Uh, and in particular, getting to hear Phil Cly read. He's, he wrote a novel called Missionaries most recently fantastic reader of fiction. Mm. And then Ron Hansen, who's who's kind of an elder statesman of this community mm -hmm. and and really a kind of uh, godlike uh, stature, <laughs> it read the most uproariously funny story, which was a perfect fit for, you know, like about two o'clock on the after, in the afternoon after mm. lunch. Uh, mm. So yeah, it's been great. Amazing. Yeah, you, you need something to energize you and that's beautiful. Indeed. Yeah. So most of this conversation will be about timeless things, but uh, perhaps ironically, <laughs> we want to start off with a lightning round, which is where we ask you just a series of short questions, and you can answer with the first thing that comes into your head. All right. So first off. It feels like a test, but go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> there are no right answers. This, this is the subjective portion. Uh, red wine or white wine? Red. Tell us something you love about Stratford, Ontario. Um, the Avon River. What is the most beautiful place you've ever seen? I am going to say from the cliff top overlooking the Frio River in the Texas Hill Country. Oh, wow. Man. This is my first time in Texas. A I Texas guess we got to come back and go to the hill. <laughs> Texas is a country to itself, and yeah. there are poor, it takes years and years to get to see the corners of it. Wow. That. What is your favorite song by Arcade Fire? <laughs> Great question. Um, I still uh, have a real soft spot for the album uh, Suburbs, mm. and uh, I refuse to choose which song on that album. <laughs> Good it's a complete work. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Favorite print publication, such as a journal or magazine, besides Image Journal? Um, I think Harper's Magazine uh, right now is kind of the best in the biz for uh, being both thoughtful commentary and um, doing really literary sentence level work. Um, I, nice. Fantastic. Cool to hear that. Yeah. yeah. 
If you could put one piece of original visual art in your home, regardless of its location, price, or availability, which one would it be? And remember, you're not bound to this. It's a lightning round. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, I want a painting by a Swiss painter named Felix Viaton. Mm -hmm. And I can see it, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's because it has a green that I could live in forever. Mm -hmm. uh, nice. I'll have to dig up the name. Cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. Amazing. <laughs> okay. What is the best thing you have ever written? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a fair question. <laughs> no, is there like maybe there was like an article you wrote yeah, where you're like yeah. you're like I nailed this. Interesting. One, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. fun. Um, so uh, uh, it might be chapter four of my new book, How to Ooh, Inhabit Time, yes. okay. called Embrace the Ephemeral. Yes. Uh, I, I will at least say this: I had the most fun writing that and I felt like I got to do something in writing that that I hadn't done before. Yes. Well, I, I confess metric. I don't uh, necessarily recall like which chapters things were in, but I probably read that within the last couple of days. Sure. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of ephemeral. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Super fascinated, by the way, with the, the concentration in French thought. So philosophy question for you. Yes. If you could interview any philosopher from the past, who would you choose? Mm, St. Augustine. Mm. Although Camus would be a very, very close second. Which book of the Bible has most impacted you? I would still say Philippians. Hmm. Um, and I would say mostly because of the hymn of Christ's humility in Philippians chapter mm -hmm. 2. Yes. Wow. What is your favorite place and time of day to write? Uh, the place is my desk in my home office, which is my most cherished and productive place. Mm -hmm. And the time of day, I, I'm, I, the 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 time of day when I'm in the flow, and that could be actually right. It could be a morning. It could be an afternoon. An honest depends. answer. Yeah. 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 Well, before we get into the philosophical part of this interview, uh, we have heard that you met your wife in elementary school. Is this true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, can we get a, a real quick backstory? <laughs> That's just such a good fact. So Deanna and I uh, both grew up not far from Rochester, actually, in southwestern Ontario. And uh, we, yeah, we went to elementary school together. Uh, I declared my love for her in seventh grade. Oh, she refused it. Uh, and then we started dating when uh, I was in high school, got married when I was 19, had our wow. first child at 21, <laughs> uh, and and now we've been married for 32 years. That's great. Wow. Were you guys like a, was it like a friend situation? Like were you friends? Yeah, very much a, a okay. small circle of friends. Cool, and then cool. uh, uh, there was a there was a camping trip in 1988. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. <laughs> So you've critiqued the kind of education that treats humans as purely thinking, rational, and cognitive creatures. The kind of education that seeks to simply deposit ideas and information into people's minds. You suggest a more effective pedagogy treats humans as not merely thinkers, but lovers with desires and passions that have hearts formed by practices. Can you talk about the role of imagination in arts in that type of education? Yeah. That's absolutely a great question. Um, so, and, and, I, and just to butt in here, Rich is a uh, high school English teacher. I, yes, I'm an English yeah. and drama yeah. teacher. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. So um, 
I, I'm also glad that you pointed out uh, what I'm saying is we're not merely thinking things. We are obviously thinking right. things. But I think our cognition and understanding and intelligence is a fa- is is shaped and primed by our affect, mm. by our desires, by eros. Sure. Um, and that, however, I think our loves and longings are most subtly trained, if you will, sh- formed, aimed, um, by rituals, routines, and practices that actually speak to the imagination. So for me, I'm, this is a this is a somewhat Kantian idea, but uh, it's also probably you know allies with the Romantics. This sense that the the imagination is not just a faculty of invention and projection. The faculty it is a faculty of. Uh, um, having a feel for the world. Yeah. It's its own faculty of a kind of understanding. Yeah. Mm. Now, this is not a video podcast for in 360, so I got to say for those of you listening, um, when uh, Jamie just said imagination, he touched his heart, not yeah. his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah, 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 very, yeah, yeah. very, very, Which is cool. probably itself an indicator of some weird habits of parsing the person that we've picked up, right? But yeah, sure. it's it's very much, I think it's a gut level thing. Mm. Um, and uh, which is also then why we have to be so intentional about how we curate our imagination. Yeah. And and often our imagination has been educated in ways that we didn't even realize. Of course. Mm. Yeah. You also write about how our love and desire is shaped and directed by material embodied practices. Mm. Quote. Would you be willing to share with us some specific examples of the, these practices we're discussing in your life that have shaped your desires? Yeah, I mean, we could let's let's pick a, both a negative example and a positive example. So uh, I think probably all of us have had the experience of the fact that the sort of tactile, concrete, micro rituals of the interaction with a smartphone, yeah, mm-hmm. is uh, a very very subtle but influential micro liturgy in our lives yes that has that has trained us not just in terms of its content but it has just made us sort of egocentric right like the world is available to us on our terms as we want it so i think Mm -hmm. i am not immune to that yeah yeah um positively i would say um this is exactly why i make an argument for the importance of historic christian liturgies Mm. as not just as like acts of religious devotion, but as um, incubators by means of which the spirit shapes our attention and imagination. And so to give myself over to those embodied, tactile, you know, and repeated practices is a way of kind of re-educating the heart, retraining the imagination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the, by the way, I I would say in particular, the liturgical calendar Mm. Which has its own rights, visual dynamics. You know, there's a there's a sort of a, the colors of a of a t- of time yeah. get played out uh, in such a way that I keep re-inhabiting the story of Christ reconciling all things to Himself, and um, yes. that's yes. that's always doing more than we realize. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I have, um, I I currently Nate and I attend the same church. We currently uh, don't. Attend a particularly liturgical church, um, but uh, I spent a lot of time in the Anglican Church in North America. And one of the things that I miss the most is the visual demarcations of the church year. Yeah. So, just such a cool thing. Yes, so I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I recall um, another embodied practice you talked about in your new book was gardening, right? That you yeah. kind of have engaged in work in the garden. And it, it just strikes me because it's so in contrast to, again, that, that idea of the smartphone kind of giving us feedback on everything and getting to control things. Whereas, like, here's something that is like wildness that we're trying to cultivate and everything takes a very long time to achieve. And like, like, have you felt that that kind of a practice has kind of pulled you into the, the timeless things? Absolutely. And, and it's also, it's such a fundamentally humbling experience to try to grow something. Yes. I mean, it's obviously 90% out of your control. (laughs) Really? Absolutely. Uh And even if you're, my wife is like literally a certified master gardener, but but then you watch her, uh, um, yeah, you, you are so at the mercy of something that you can't control. And I think it's actually a great counter to, you know, I completely control what my device yeah. gives me, whereas this is something where I have to sort of humble myself. And and the materiality of it, I think, is really significant. Yes. We were actually just talking to, to Paul Pastor yesterday, and he was very strong on the idea of, like, you ought not to come to nature on your own terms, but you ought to let it, like, affect you. Yeah. Um, and that that's, like, extremely extremely important for our formation. I just think that's interesting, yeah. like, right, going into situations we can't control. Yes, and, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You, you you really find this in the monastic and contemplative traditions, too, that contemplation is always paired with a kind of labor mm-hmm. uh, yes. that is requires a submission mm-hmm. on our part, yes. which mm-hmm. I think is makes sense when you get the connection. It's like we're, we're constantly fighting against those practices yes. now because we, we don't like yeah. them. Um, yeah. our, our active devotion to something, that is where we, we engage in a physical or even mental laborious activity purposefully in devotion to yeah. God is something that I think uh, American Christianity se- severely needs. Yeah. And uh, you know, yeah. that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this, I think, uh, ties in really well to what you were talking about with, uh, you know, smartphones um, forming us uh, in contrast to these embodied practices. One of our uh, colleagues at Forefront read your book, Desiring the Kingdom, Mm -hmm. recently, and we wanted to ask you about an idea that you had in that and and kind of if you could update that idea for us today. So you wrote this analysis about shopping malls as as religious sites uh, where commercial liturgies lead to the formation of a person's identity. So we wanted to ask, uh, do you see that same kind of religious structure in the the forces at work in online spaces today? And uh, like are the um, social media sites kind of the new shopping malls Mm. in a way, even though they're not embodied in the same way that a shopping mall was? It's interesting. So I have two sort of updated second edition thoughts about that. The first (laughs) is I do think um, the online experience is different in very important ways because one of the things I emphasize in Desiring the Kingdom is that there was a there's a communal dynamic often to the pilgrimage to the shopping mall. Yes. I think especially for younger people, yeah. right? But there's this kind of like, oh, we're doing this together, and it, it actually reinforces. You lose that almost entirely, and and the pandemic clearly disrupted a lot of it. So now people are yeah. looking for retail therapy on their own on their phones at home. Um, the instant. Tenaity? Is that a word? Uh, the instantness <laughs> of the availability of the good um, with the one click 
Uh, and then that sort of like frustrate, you know, Amazon always just has to get it to us quicker, quicker, quicker. So sometimes when you live in New York City, it comes that day uh, because we need the we need yeah. the feedback loop very quickly. But I, I think it's less meaningful for people. So it probably actually ramps up accumulation because you actually don't get quite the same sacramental experience of the, the, the thing. Right. However, I, I do want to say I don't think the physical experience of shopping is, is gone. Do you know what I yes. mean? It's migrated into different places or it has certainly, um, this is maybe it's more true actually in the luxury level of our society, which mm -hmm. is increasingly influential. And so when you, I, I just spent a, a month in, in uh, Paris and, and Rome and uh, look, people are absolutely making a pilgrimage to Prada. They, 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 are, they are flying from Japan to go to Milan to visit the Bottega shop. And, and that is, um, pilgrimage is not an, a, an overwrought term to describe right. it. And I, right. I think, um, so I think there's something about the physicality of that looking for meaning in acquisition that mm -hmm. remains alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I was thinking about how, like, even that idea of, of shopping, like, even if we're not doing a lot of retail shopping physically, uh, and maybe we're doing a lot of online shopping, even those ideas, though, can, like, seep into our understanding of the world, where we come at the world in a manner of, what can I take with me? What can I get out of this? What can I capture? Absolutely. You talk about, like, taking pictures of everything all the time, right. and, and that sort of thing. Um, everything's kind of me. And, and I would, so yeah. let's, let's um, part of the analysis is also that marketing is kind of the evangelism mm, of yes. the gospel of consumerism. Right. And in 100%. that sense, nothing has diminished marketing. <laughs> and the way marketing works most powerfully is that it tells a story in which I find meaning and significance and fulfillment, and it associates the acquisition of a product with mm -hmm. it. So of course it's commodifying everything. Everything gets commodified, but it's still actually backhandedly recognizing something about human hunger, mm -hmm. which is a hunger for like happiness, mm -hmm. meaning, significance. Mm -hmm. And it's just sad that it, it offers the kind of uh, um, pseudo mm -hmm. faux version of it. Yes. But it's, it's the one that comes easiest. Uh, so it's, it's still a powerful, powerful liturgy in our culture, I think. Right. The, g giving people exactly what they want in the easiest way possible. <laughs> so. It's a little dance, actually, <laughs> but, too, right? Because you actually have to, you have to make them want something that they don't yet have. Mm -hmm. So there has to be this little experience of lack, yeah. of mm -hmm. something's wrong with me, mm -hmm. something's missing. And then, but it has to be close enough that it could be available that yeah. I could attain it. So yeah, right. it's a, it's an interesting and dance. Yeah, one thing I've noticed too is often in, uh, and I'm not, uh, I don't have a background in marketing or experience with that, but just one thing that I've observed is just the fact that the, so often I feel like increasingly the thing that is being marketed, like the thing that's uh, that we lack, is just attention. Mm, so we yes. we put forth these advertisements that effectively what we're supposed to garner from that is these people get attention, they're being seen, they're being yes. appreciated. Yes. And it has nothing to do with the product. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is such a fundamental human longing oh, to yeah. be seen and to, to be, be known. I mean, think of I mean, how perhaps much perhaps our deepest longing. Yes, yeah. right? I mean, how much is the is the gospel of the announcement that you are seen and known by somebody who loves knows everything about you and, and still loves appreciated you. Appreciated and valued. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cherished. Yeah.
Yeah, I, I remember I was reading um, Andy Crouch's latest book, and he like starts it off with just children when they're born looking for eye contact. Like, I just want someone to like yeah. see me and to see yes. them. And, yes, yeah. it's why it's, it's why isolation and loneliness is such a the most brutal torture. It is. It's just uh, it's it's so dehumanizing. Yeah, and yet uh, yet yet so common today uh, mm. that we we live that way. So I want to get into, of course, your new book, uh, How to Inhabit Time, and ask you some questions about that. But to kick us off with that, we actually have an audience question that I thought would make for a good start for you to kind of discuss the theme of the book. And the question comes from Dr. Stanley Hauerwas. He's the Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke Divinity School. He said to give you his best and asks, how can we know what time we are in? And that is actually the great challenge. See, he's throwing me a hardball question. <laughs> Son of a... Um, it's a deceptively short question. Right. But it, and it, I think it is the challenge. It's something I deal with in, in Chapter 5 of the book, which is um, we never get a spiritual drone that lets us fly above the flux of history and time, right? You are always embedded in the midst of it. And so it's why the hardest work of what I call spiritual timekeeping is discernment. When hmm. are we? When is our now? I think the the one of the ways that we can try to do that is actually by listening um, to our past and trying to discern what got us here. And then we're looking at our present and seeing what is expected. What are we called to given our past mm -hmm. in this moment in which we find ourselves? But you're still reading the signs, right? You're trying to understand the times, and that's hard work. So there's no formula. And then on a, on a personal level, I'll say, I think that you can um, receive the gift of almost future knowledge if you listen to people who have gone through seasons you haven't yet experienced. So yeah. this is one of, uh, more on a personal level than a collective level, I think multi-generational friendship is a way, it's almost like a form of time travel, mm. because if I can yes. listen to those who are ahead of me, in a way it's like getting a report from the future, and that yeah. might help me sort of do my own temporal location and say, oh, okay, this is when I am, and it's not forever, right? This, yes. is, this is the time that I find myself yeah. in. So it's, yeah. Stan knows exactly that there's no answer to that question, which is <laughs> how, uh, how hard sure? it is, yes. right. yeah, yes. how difficult yeah. it is. I'm fascinated by that um, because in my, uh, like Nate mentioned, I'm a high school teacher and I'm, I'm in a department that has uh, three sort of distinct eras within the department. And it's just due to the how it worked, there were kind of Of the three, faculty, you mean? Yes, 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 yes. Of three major kind of like hiring waves, let's yeah. say, um, in my department. So there, there's teachers that are, have been teaching for 30 plus years years there's teachers that have been here for about 15 and then there's teachers that have been here for five yeah. and there's three eras right and what i've noticed is due to the how quick our our time moves now how fast our culture moves there are um i in a departmental meeting i actually feel like you said like i am looking because i'm in the young group i'm looking through a glass at the educational philosophies and eras of the two generations above me at the same time. And I find that 
I enjoy it and find it really beneficial, but yeah. there's also a lot of conflict that comes from that because yes. it feels like people from three different worlds that are being asked to uh, come to agreement. And that's very difficult. It's so, and it's equally important, by the way, for your older colleagues to be listening to you because they're. I'm not going to tell myself that though, because it's very I know, uh, ego boosting. I know, right? It yeah. is. It no, is. But, yeah, yeah. but it, it, it is. It's one of the reasons yeah. I love teaching college is because I I, I always think uh, um, a young person's experience of the now yeah. is always going to be different than my experience yes. of the now. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm trying to kind of get intel on when we are. I need to do a lot of listening to how people are experiencing the moment that we're in. Otherwise, my blindered yes. old man take mm-hmm. on it, it turns out to be a, a misreading of the yes. signs of the and times. And we need to understand whether we support it or not. You know, like people, I feel like often older people avoid um, diving into the world of the young because it makes Oh, it's uncomfortable. Right. I'm classifying myself as old now. Yeah. The um, No, but I'm saying, but I work with teenagers all day, right? And the fact that whether I like the value systems and, and beliefs of the American teenager or not, they exist yeah. and they're coming. Yes. The, the, yeah, the, water, that's right. the flood's coming. That's right. So, so I feel that one of our, uh, one of the most wise practices we can have actually is engaging as much with the young as with the old. Yes. Um, yeah. Very cool. I think, I think that now here comes a real old man comment. Then the trick also is for the young to not assume that their take is the definitive take. Mm-hmm. Particularly. Which is in, very hard to do if you're young, right? In that, other words, that, you're, you're, you're like, you, you know, Anyone over, th- don't trust anyone over 30, yeah, so on yeah. and so forth. You, you assume, oh, you're just out of touch. You don't yeah. see reality. It's like, no, we all are trying to figure out this elephant that is the now, and you're touching a side that I can't reach, but right. I'm seeing something right. you're not seeing. And a, a timeless quality of youth, right, is the feeling of immortality and that and yeah. that, that everyone older than me has timed out. Yeah. But in, in our present day, I... If, you know, philosophically, right, hyper real issue due to the fact that our world appears to be attempting to remake itself yeah. right now. So not only are young people automatically, you know, having the natural urge to be like, okay, you know, old things are past, but now we are actually being young people are actually being told that everything that older than them is it, everything that is older than them rather is invalid due to the fact that we are redefining all yeah. terms yeah. Yeah. so a, ver- a very yeah. strange time yeah. that we live in it is i mean it, the, collectively it's so hard like if you just take so we're in the united states so let's take yeah. sort of american culture um you know i think one of the things you have to ask yourself and i don't have an answer to this question but i think it's a question we have to ask is okay how does a republic end are are we in the end? <laughs> like, is this is this what the end of a republic looks like? A lot of republics have come to an end. This one has held out for a remarkably long time. But is this what the end of a republic looks like? And if it is, well, I need we need to know that now, right? In order to know what we're called to. But yeah. it's but that yeah. some people might say, oh, that's a really hysterical read of the president. Yes, it might be. Let's do the work of trying to figure it out. I would yeah. say too that, uh, and I'm not a historian, but I would say too that I I would I would wager that at the end of republics in the past, uh, the common thought was probably that this republic will not fall. And yeah, it that did. could be right. Yeah, that would um, that's where yeah learning from yeah, the past makes could it be more difficult. Yeah, yeah. So um, at one point in the book, after describing a painting by Gaspar de Crier, you say this. 
The incarnation is the nexus of history and eternity. The collision of time and eternity in Christ has ripple effects for how we understand both, which is why the peculiar Christian imagination is best pictured in painting. So we thought this was an interesting statement because art forms like film and music are necessarily experienced over time. They have a beginning and an end, whereas paintings don't share this quality. Yet, you say that paintings best picture the collision of time and eternity. Do I say best? Yeah. Yeah, that's an overstatement. It's like, that did happen. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but either way. Yeah, um, second edition. Second yeah. edition, yeah. <laughs> yes, can yeah. you expand on that idea? Yeah. Uh, specifically, what are some ways that a Christian painter can lean into that strength of the yeah. static? I just, I wouldn't, I, I, um, I didn't ever intend it as an exclusive claim for the genre. I think what, but uh, that painting in particular and others that I discuss are, are th- this, this marvelous uh, Renaissance pattern where you have people, saints and sinners and, uh, 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 you know, ordinary folk from wildly disparate centuries, yes, all gathered into one frame, experiencing the same time, yes, which is a time that is this nearness to Christ. This Charles Taylor calls yeah. it sort of the higher times that we experience in. You could say it's Kairos. Yeah. So I love that, and I think it's. I think it's what intrigues me is uh, let's say let me put the claim this way. I do think the arts. Yeah. are best positioned mm-hmm. to enact that because I also think film is is a medium that plays with time and folds sure. it in a way. This is actually a French philosopher named Gilles Deleuze spent a lot of time on uh, thinking about this. And so I, I think there's something about art's capacity to pull us out of our merely linear chronological experience of the TikTok of time and sort of throw us into an environment in which this kind of folding of time mm. that God enacts is something you can experience. Yeah. And yes. and now it sort of like breaks open possibilities for you. Mm. And and really what we're talking about is an experience of a kind of presence that refuses the mere availability of chronological time. Yes. Yeah. Maybe like uh like best shown in the films of like Terrence Malick or sure. something like that. It's very, a great very, example. Very, yeah. very clearly yeah. like uh giving you the lessons of time. Yes. Yet mm. in the space of a couple hours. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also a deeply uh, historic, historical Christian idea as well. Like even in, uh, while this is debatable, even in like historic uh, Eucharistic theology, like the idea that the um, Eucharist is a instance outside of time. So like the, the, when we approach uh, the Lord's Supper, right, we are experiencing something with all the body of Christ through all time, yeah. Um, yeah. which is just fascinating. Yeah, which so. is the, the sursum corda, right? Lift up your hearts. You're sort of gathered up into uh, – I, I think it's important to realize that that's also met in the kind of condescension of the incarnation, which mm-hmm. is God what, – what the remarkable folding of time is possible only because the God who created the cosmos with its clock, so to speak, is also the God who then inhabited time. Right. right. That's like the inciting event that makes it all possible. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I love how you talk about in your book about how like we don't we don't have a lesser uh, connection to the incarnation simply because we live afterward. Yes. Which I think it's yes. very comforting. That's Kierkegaard. So, yeah. so Kierkegaard's <laughs> philosophical yeah. framework. That was <laughs> I, like, I, I didn't write that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and it was, I remember reading me. that as a sophomore in college, and that was like, oh, that's kind of like a game changer, yeah, right? Absolutely. That yeah. any, uh, um, 
the, the Christ is as available to any later follower as he was to the first disciples. Praise yes. God. Praise yeah. God. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. Uh, so talking about time and our, our place in it, um, tremendous amount of media today is capitalizing on nostalgia. Here's that nostalgia question. Right. <laughs> um, so here at Forefront 360, we recently recorded a podcast, uh, a pretty long discussion reflecting on the wildly popular TV phenomenon, Stranger Things, uh, which exists uh, on pretty good writing and really good characters, but perhaps mainly on nostalgia for 1980s content. Um, my 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 teen years, yeah. heart of my teen years, yeah. 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, many people have written about how nostalgia has been a key factor in the success of the show and the franchise. So in How to Inhabit Time, you have been critical of nostalgia. Uh, you say, "quote There is a sort of fascination with the past that is an act of deliberate forgetting. It's called nostalgia. The most significant problem with nostalgia is not that it remembers, but what it forgets." Nostalgia is rarely antiquarian, a mere interest in history qua history. It is more commonly a sentimental pining for the way it was. Such nostalgia is always a form of arrested development. For example, there are sorts of nostalgia that are not so subtle longings for adolescence and thus resent adulthood. Many forms of collective nostalgia demonize the present while luxuriating in a fabled past. So do you think that nostalgia is something that can be turned towards a good end, or is it something that we should avoid? Yeah. Um, so my friend Norman Wiersbo, who's a colleague of Stanley's at Duke, we disagree about. He thinks there's, like, healthy nostalgia. Hmm. I disagree. I would say that there's healthy remembering. Yes. Memory, yeah. Um, so we, it's not a question of whether you relate to the past or whether you remember. It's a question of how you remember. Mm. And I guess I'm 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 not alone in this certainly, but I'm I'm sort of reserving the 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 descriptor nostalgia for a way and a kind of remembering mm -hmm. that is defined by a sentimental romanticization of an edited past. Well, yes. even like how when nostalgic sequences are, are depicted in film, it's in soft focus yes, and, yes. and things are, are blurred. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and yeah. to be contrasted, for example, with the flashback episode in a film, mm. right? Which yeah. is the terror of the war coming back to somebody in sure. the present. Why is that not nostalgia, yeah. right? That's a kind of memory because of the it's past. it's not soft. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. And it's not warm and you don't have mm -hmm. the fuzzies and you don't want to be there. Yeah. It's actually the past that keeps haunting you. Yeah. Nostalgia is like, I wish I lived in the past. Right, right. Which is, yeah. and I think, uh, um, I, I quote a line from the Antarctic explorer, Terry Apsley Gerard, where he said, it's, the line is something like, uh, um, so much of the trouble of the world is caused by memory, for we only remember half. Yes. Mm. And I, I think nostalgia is a really significant temptation for a lot of religious communities right now. Yes. And um, what's, what's, I think, disastrous about that is they're forgetting what was excluded in that past, who was excluded in that past, who suffered in that past. But I also think it's, it's, it's regrettable because it shuts down the possibilities of how we can live forward into the future. Yeah, yeah. And kind of a, a breeding of discontentment in a way. Um, yeah. And feeds resentments. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, you probably don't want to talk about politics, but yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. the politics of resentment is yeah. always rooted in a nostalgia. Yes, yeah. 100%. And yeah. a, a nostalgia, like you say in the quote, right? A nostalgia for something that didn't really exist. It's a fantasy yeah. um, yes. due yes. to what is being 
purposely yes. forgotten. And you can, yeah. by the way, you can, I think sometimes you can most easily romanticize a past that you never experienced. Hence the millennial obsession with Stranger Things. Also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Latin Mass. Absolutely. No, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? There's just, uh, I, I think it's very, t- I mean, that's, I'm veering outside my Protestant lane here, but. Uh, Catholic Imagination Conference there's a, 2022. Yes. We're hitting the controversies right here. Yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that it's actually the youngest generations who are most taken with a nostalgic replay of pre-Vatican II Catholicism. Sure. Well, the, uh, you, I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Times published an article, I want to say about two months ago, over the summer in 2022, yes. called um, The Catholic Church is the Hottest Club yes. in New York. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah, slightly and, obnoxious. Yeah, but the idea <laughs> but the idea that like the there is a, a Gen Z um, revival of ancient forms of Catholicism and also Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy, excuse me, yeah. um, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 So I want to make sure we get here. Uh, one of the essential tenets of the book is what you call memento tempori. Mm. Remember that you are temporal. At one point you say, to resent mortality is a mark of hubris. When we resent our own mortality, we resent the fact that what is given is not eternal. Then all too often, we try to fabricate eternity. We cling and dig in our claws, refusing to let go. The irony is that we lose in grasping. So uh, as an aside, as I was reading this, it reminded me of in Tolkien's work where the arrogant men uh, start to fear death and they try to go wrest eternal life from the hands of the Valar, Mm. which of course- great doesn't work and ends in their destruction. Uh, but they effectively lose in grasping. They were not content with their mortality, uh, which I think is what you're, you're kind of getting at. So, but I wanted to relate this, this is an arts podcast. I wanted to relate this back to the Christian artist. And I think that as an artist, often there is a desire to create enduring works Mm. because we know that our life is temporal Mm -hmm. so we want to create something that's going to last Mm -hmm. beyond that maybe like create a legacy of art that matters beyond our death Um, so would you say that that kind of a desire that pursuit of creating those enduring works is trying to fabricate eternity essentially and artists should primarily give care to what their art does now and in the present Um, or is trying to create that enduring art really a noble task that is not going to cross the line into kind of resenting their mortality? It's a great question. I, 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 it's definitely the latter for me. So, but let me think this through. Uh, I don't think every desire to create a work that endures is the same as grasping after my own immortality. Mm. I think it can, it can be, yeah. um, but I think it can also be because I'm actually pursuing an excellence. And, and there, it could be that excellence in certain forms and certain artifacts will mean that they are they continue to be received gratefully by subsequent right. generations or something like that. I I, I yeah. absolutely I think about this as a writer. Do you know what I mean? I yes. think some people are trying to write to get on the New York Times bestseller list, which means writing entirely for today. Yeah. Or or you can try to write a book that people are reading in 50 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I think those it's not too often that those two things overlap. Yes. And I w- I want to write the latter without question. Yeah. But I think um 
I also think it's a reason, though, why I, I, I wish more Christians had room to appreciate what's happening in contemporary art, which I think I'm thinking of like installation art, mm-hmm. a lot of conceptual art, performative art, which is, I think, leans into and fully embraces the ephemerality of the our mortal condition. Mm-hmm. And and um, you can't hang it on your wall, but it also means that it can't be commodified in the same way. Yes. And it yeah. calls us to experience it in the now. And then the artist keeps creating and keeps inventing and is doing the next thing. Yeah, I, exactly. I would love it if if Christians had more space to celebrate and participate, right? It's also a kind mm-hmm. of art that you don't just make the journey, go snap the photo in the gallery, and then you go home again. This is like, you have to be present to it. And I, yeah. I think that's a really significant contribution that contemporary art has to make yeah yes yeah art that's connected to the place that it's in yes um and is and, and the is moment kind of, the yeah. moment and, that and it's also in. the yeah. people that are there yes. like the uh, yeah. the audience in a uh performance becoming part becoming part of the instrument yeah. yeah yes speaking of the value of the arts you say this a film a poem a song can invite us into multiple states of mind Evoking conflicting emotions, yet managing to hold them together so that we dwell in the world with an unspoken appreciation for its messiness and a newfound humility in the face of its complexity. Our mortality is fraught and the arts are a balm, not because they heal us of our mortality, but because they absolve us of the need to control, to fix, to escape. So I wanted to ask when you've had these times in your life when you've wanted to control things or maybe you're, you're uh, wanting to escape from the messiness of the world around you, uh, hey, can you talk about maybe an example or two of pieces of art that, have, uh, that you've turned to that have been a balm for you in those times uh, or that have helped you kind of reckon with the paradoxes in front of you? Yeah, I, I, um, for example, I think the poetry of Franz Wright uh, has been uh, an enduring companion for me in because it um, it sort of leans into the complexity of faith and doubt being twined in the experience of the spiritual life and yeah. um, also sort of uh, he, he has a, a series of poems where he's sort of grappling with an absent father, which had actually been really, really existentially significant for me. But you can also see him grasping the humanity of this father who left. And so getting leaning into that complexity. I, I think the arts are so crucial to our cultural moment right now precisely because they refuse to flatten the other mm-hmm. and they 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 want me to live into the complexity and ambiguity of our shared collective uh, experience um, there's another if you're if you're thinking of uh, I think you were asking about like art that I return to that could be um, or it could be just yeah. a particular yeah, moment yeah. yeah okay yeah so yeah, I think yeah. uh, um, I, I I would also say that uh, it's there's a beautiful example of a novel by Wallace Stegner called Crossing to Safety, 
Mm. And I, I think that has been a significant thing for us because it's something that my wife and I both love and adore and share. And it's about two couples. And we have also read that in common with couples who are our dearest co-pilgrims in life. Mm, yes. And to share artwork in that way, I think is a really, really significant experience because it's almost yes. like now you have a touch point in your life together that you keep going back to. And it's funny how often I almost ask ourselves, how we are playing out this novel. And yeah, it's, it's a, it, it adds to the richness, I think, of a journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to be, able, to be able to reference that together later on, yeah. that's yes, really special. Yes, yes. I also yeah. think way too often about um, Terrence Malick's Thin Red Line, mm -hmm. which almost nobody mm -hmm. likes, yeah, yeah. And, it is, and is not his, you know, it's not the most celebrated film, and it's kind of a bit Rowy in some ways, but I still I just think it's it's portrayal of light and dark and good and evil is is um, it's a touch point that I keep coming back to in my imagination. I find right. So I want to end with this. At one point in your book, you contrast shame and grace. You say shame lives off the lie of spiritual self improvement, which is why my past is viewed as a failure. Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story is taken up into God and God's story. God is writing a new chapter of my life, not starting a new book after throwing out the first draft of my prior existence. Shame denies that our very being is possibility, whereas grace, by nature, is futural. Grace is the good news of unfathomable possibility. And uh, on a personal note, as I reflect on my life recently, I feel like there have been a lot of points where recently I feel that uh, there is not that sort of infinite possibility. And that when I walk into a situation, I'm kind of haunted by when things went wrong in the past. And I feel like in order to make sure that doesn't happen again, I have to do everything correctly. Mm. I need to say things correctly. I need to organize things correctly because if I don't, mm. then these problems are going to recur. Uh, everything's going to go wrong. And so I feel like that is kind of a, a spiritual self-improvement mm. uh, as, as you describe it. And so Augustine would say it's kind of Pelagian, yes. right? I need to do this <laughs> self-management to get my yes. stuff together and then God will bless my action. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I got to do everything correctly first, uh, rather than bringing that to God and having faith, faith in God and his grace, uh, to, to work out those amazing possibilities that he has in store for us. And when, when you're in these kind of similar situations yourself, um, when you're in, in times of darkness or, uh, feel shame about the past, you know, even if you kind of know intellectually right. about the, right. the reservoirs of grace available to you, um, how do you get back to believing that that grace is there for you and believing enough to pray enough to hope enough for that to change? Yeah, I think, um, this will sound banal and very obvious maybe, or uh, it's usually other people mm -hmm. who um, refuse to let me let that be the story that I'm living into. And 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 in a different and, and my wife is my best friend, and so that's often the primary conduit of yes. it. But it can be others as well. And so I think um, sometimes you can't just sort of 
think your way out of that sort of space. You actually need others to re-narrate the story to you. Uh, and there will be seasons in which they have to sing the song for you, and uh, their patient presence alongside you is the most tangible expression of God's covenant love. And so there's a patience almost that's required to get to that place. I can't sort of like just, oh yeah, I forgot this, and therefore now that I remember it, I'm good to go. You have yes. to sort of like rehabituate uh, um, yourself in a new way. And, and it's why I think um, the body of Christ is mm -hmm. still the primary channel of the Spirit's activity mm. and that communal element of it. I think there's just so many versions of Christianity that still set it up as a lone venture. Yes. And uh, I think it's that's a, a two-man two job. Me and Jesus. <laughs> yes, that's it. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, you know, Rich and myself are in a, a church small group together, and that, that community of believers has been very helpful to me and, uh, and, and taking me back to, to the possibilities of grace. And, um, I have a wonderful wife who, who does the same for me, but, um, I, I love how you answered that because as I've, I've joked with Rich a few times during these interviews, when one of the interviewer, one, one of the interviewees will counter the premise of a question, right. <laughs> ra ra rather than kind of answering right. it directly. Right. It's like, well, I'm going to challenge that premise. Um, and I feel like you, you did that in a, in a beautiful way in that it's not, uh, here's this thing you can do right. to right. Uh, connect yeah. with grace. Yeah, yeah. I understand but, the desire. Right, right. Yes. But instead of being like a thing that I need to do, yeah. it is in fact a thing that must be yes. done yes. by yeah. others. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's, and it's, and it's it cultivating the availability for you to receive more yes. than what do I have to accomplish? Yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. Um, as, as just a, a follow up here, I love the passage in your book when you say that resurrection and forgiveness mean the future is always an open source of surprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Thank you. So uh, listeners, Dr. James K.A. Smith's newest book is called How to Inhabit Time understanding the past, facing the future, living faithfully now. Uh, I think it's a, it's a beautiful and important book. And uh, as you were talking about like enduring works of art and how you think about that in your writing, I was uh, just considering how like, I, I really do think this is a book that clearly will benefit its readers now, mm. but it would be almost surprising if it were not mm. uh, beneficial Thank uh, you. beyond this season. Thanks so much. Um, I appreciate that. That means not only due to its subject matter, but because of just the wealth of tradition you draw upon mm, and, and the wisdom mm, great. Uh, therein. Thank so, you. I really appreciate yeah. that. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So we'd encourage uh, listeners to pick it up wherever books are sold. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, where should they go? Uh, JamesKASmith.com, <laughs> I guess is the place to start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks Excellent. for your interest. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us on Forefront 360. For those of you who are listening, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art. <laughs>